Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ and then to be sanctuary to each other and express sanctuary to this city. And so for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. Okay, well, it is my tremendous joy to introduce uh, our dear friend, Andrew Wilson. Uh, before I forget, because I'll forget this, just to say before I briefly introduce him, um, we're going to have some Q&A. Uh, Andrew will speak for around 25 minutes, and then we are going to have some Q&A. So if you would like to ask him a question, either on the, the subject that he will be dealing with or something that you just want to ask him, that's fine. We can't promise that we'll get to it. But if you want to pop your question in the chat box, which is that sort of orangey box thing at the bottom of your screen, if you're not techie like me, it says chat, a little hint there. Click on it, and then you can add your question, and we will endeavor to get to them. Tim will fill that bit. And if you're watching this on Facebook Live around the world, greetings, wherever you might be, you can type your question onto the Facebook Live questiony bit. And we'll try and get to a few of those as well. Uh, Andrew is a wonderful, wonderful, gifted speaker. He's very clever and was involved with the Cambridge Debating Society, which I love. And um, he is a great, in a sense, um, defender of the faith in the best sense. He's really excellent at helping people understand what C.S. Lewis said was the reasonableness of Christianity. But I do love the fact that he is also a man himself who is a, a man of real humility, uh, fun. Uh, he can laugh at himself. He's a joyful man who loves Jesus in an abandoned childlike way. And he has been through his own fair share of suffering, which I'm sure he'll mention. So this isn't just some sort of um, cerebral theological thing. It's a combination. So, Andrew, I'm sure if we're all unmuted, we'd all be having rapturous applause now across the globe. But you can <laughs> everyone. Thanks so much for joining us, Andrew Wilson. Oh, mate, you're very kind, Tom. Thank you so much. Um, it's lovely. I, I realise I just I see Tom and Josie grinning at me, and I've known. I realise I've now known you for exactly half my life. Uh, we met like 21 years ago. You're 42 now, right, Tom? So you were. You were 21 when you did this, and so that's that's pretty crazy. And then I looked around; I couldn't believe it. And it's not just Ollie and Caleb and Sarah, and then Mark and Hannah and Rachel Tweedell. It's just people everywhere. I feel like I know half the people on this call, and I've, I don't even know why that would be true. None of you, well, a few of you seem to be in San Francisco, and there's people all over. So that's lovely, and uh, thank you very much for having me. I should just say I've known Tom long enough, therefore, to know that when he says that. What is the words? I wrote it down because I thought it was so funny. He said, "Oh yes, that announcement is sufficiently dramatic now that I live in America." And I just thought that I love that Tom would have us believe that he's only become a complete drama queen since he's moved to San Francisco. He's turned it down. This is like he's dramatically less elaborate and I'm trying theatrical than he used to be. So I just think that's remarkable. Um, so yeah, it's great. It's really good to be with you. Um, I've actually been to. I spent a couple of days in San Francisco five years ago. Absolutely loved it saw all the straight lines on the map, thought this city looks great for walking and just found the entire experience was like walking over an egg box. I was just, just hills were like this the entire time. I was absolutely exhausted after a day of 
walking every which way and encountering places named like things, names like Tenderloin. And I just, as I'm English, so I just laughed everywhere I went. It was great. I had such a lovely time and thought it was an amazing city. So I feel very envious of you guys all being there. But if you have a Bible, do you want to turn to Psalm 130? Psalm 130. I I don't know how many of the Psalms you've read, but if you read a few of them, one of the things you quickly notice is that a great many of them are uh, uh, laments, they're sad songs, um, minor key songs, songs about how awful everything is. And I, I remember saying a few years ago when we were going through a particular challenging time in our own lives as a couple, that when I was, I think when I was in my 20s, I didn't really know why so many of the Psalms were about sorrow. And now I'm in my 30s, I can't work out why so many of them are about something else um, because there just seems so many things to grieve in the world. And even in the time we're in now where you've got not just healthcare issues and bereavements and probably possibly in your community, certainly in mine, I'm in London, which is the epicenter really of the UK outbreak here. We've got, and I heard news today, we had another person in the church who's uh, either lost somebody or today or somebody who's died in the, in the church. And uh, it's It's life is sad. It's just full of sadness and you might be getting primary sadness or you might be getting secondary sadness through the challenges for the economy and the, all the challenges, the challenges of lockdown, loneliness, isolation, all the things that we're living with. And the Psalms are just full of solace and encouragement for people who are experiencing sadness. And I love the way that they are, they're obviously deeply real because they're people howling out at God and saying, God, why is this being true? Why is this the case? And the odd thing about them is that sometimes as you're reading them, rescue comes. And there's this moment of redemption and a twist. And sometimes when you're reading them, rescue doesn't come. And it leaves a big question mark over why is this happening? And it just doesn't really land it. It leaves you saying, I don't know. But when I have that question, I need to take it to the Lord and, and just process it with him rather than just sitting on it myself and hoping I will figure it out. And taken together, these lament psalms are a, a profound and a rich and a very deeply real way of dealing with the problem of suffering. So I just want to look at one very short one with you today. Psalm 130. It's been a very important psalm in my own life. And I suggest that we come to it with the question, what do we do with suffering? Right? Sometimes that question comes up intellectually. You know, How do you rationalize belief in God in a world where there is suffering? And I think that's a it's a really good question. It's an important question. I just think at a time like this, it's not always even the first question people are asking. They're not just dealing with it intellectually. They're saying, no, I want you to tell me what I'm supposed to do with the feeling I have of these, the pain and grief and sorrow, sorrow and suffering there is in the world. Where do I go with it? How do I handle it? Who do I take it to? And what resources are there, if any, in Christianity to handle those kinds of questions when suffering comes? And we know it will. Jesus says, in the world, you're going to have trouble. I was reading it in my devotions this morning. Peter said, you mustn't be surprised when fiery trials fall upon you. James says, you're going to get trials. And when you do, you should think about them as pure joy. <laughs> How am I supposed to do that? Paul says, this body of mine wasting away. But even as it does, there's this weight of glory beyond comparison for me. And so scripture says, you've got to expect a lot of suffering in this world. And in a way, what's happened in the last month or two is we've been recalibrated to the experience most of our brothers and sisters in the world for most of history have experienced. And something of the affluent, comfortable bubble that many of us, not all, have lived in most of our lives has burst. And we found ourselves exactly where most of the people who lived as Christians in history have been for most of our history. And, and so when that happens, the bubble bursts and we end up with tragic realities. What do we do with the 
suffering that might be the coronavirus or it might be a, a miscarriage or a bereavement or an earthquake or a cancer or a cot death or what or a divorce whatever it is where do we go with this what do we do with suffering i'm going to read psalm 130 beginning at verse one a song of ascents out of the depths i cry to you O lord O lord hear my voice let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of God. Now this psalm is, like so many of the lament psalms, is born both out of painful suffering and it's been a, a source of sustaining power for God's people for two and a half thousand years or more so far. And I think it reflects, a, a the reason I love this particular psalm is it's so short, but it reflects a journey through different phases of the way we cope with suffering that I find very helpful. And as I say, in my own life, when I've faced tough times, it's been a huge source of uh, help to me because it, what it does is it tracks through four different phases of what happens as we encounter great suffering as in all kinds of different ways. Really, to some degree, we all are right now. Some of us are more up against it than others, but all of us are living through something that's shaken us, I, I imagine, unless you're made of steel you, this this has been a tough time right uh, and i think the journey in this psalm helps us with our question what do we do with suffering but what the psalmist does is he begins with weeping and then he moves to worshiping and then he moves to waiting and then finally he ends up with witnessing and that journey of weeping worshiping waiting and witnessing i find such a helpful journey for us as we're processing what am i supposed to do when i experience something very painful and difficult like what we're in at the moment and the psalmist starts i think really honestly where we where we do he starts with weeping he starts with sadness verses one and two out of the depths i cry to you oh lord oh lord hear my voice let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy this isn't a, a balanced measured prayer right this is a wailing, howling, guttural, visceral sound from someone who is wrenched in their gut by what's happening to them. This is the kind of prayer that when you pray it, you've got snot coming out your nose and you're making a mess and you need to reach for tissue. It's, it's not a kind of measured, oh Lord, we pray that you would help us. And there's nothing wrong with those prayers either. God hears them too. But this is a prayer that comes from the from the God, it's a, a howl of like, what are you doing, Lord? I'm crying to you here. Please, would you hear me? This, I need your mercy because this is awful. And that kind of cry is what we're supposed to do when tragedy strikes, when suffering comes. We are supposed to cry. That's what Jesus did at the graveside. That's what the psalmist seemed to be <laughs> crying all the time. And in, in many cultures, there's a much greater expectation than there is in yours and mine that people would cry as a regular public expression of how to cope with pain that's very common in a lot of cultures globally today it's not so much in ours probably for most of us but in the bible there's a very high expectation that people are going to mourn 
grieve and cry and weep and make a loud fuss when suffering comes for days or weeks or even months. And for some of us, I mean, I just made fun of Tom for being theatrical and I'm, as you can probably already tell, I'm kind of like that a bit as well. And for some of us, expressing ourselves visibly might come more naturally than others. But when suffering comes to people we love, we're intended to have that heart attitude with them to rejoice with those who rejoice, but also to weep with those who weep. And sometimes it can be tempting to charge in with other responses, with with questions or with answers you know how could god let this happen or god could let this happen because i think what he's really doing is this or advice you know when other someone else is grieving we come in and say well what you really need to do is do this and that'll fix it or sometimes people just make silly christian comments like it'll be all right <laughs> it's just often not true often it's not all right it's not all right for years it doesn't it it scars you and wounds you and whatever kind of suffering you're in i don't mean the one we're in now but uniquely i think all suffering we're in it can be tempting for us to process our suffering or the suffering of others in ways that doesn't simply bring our pain and our grief to god and what we can do instead is to you know social media is very dangerous here because what i can do is i can take my pain and my grief and confusion and post it online and by and I, I basically, I could prefer venting to lamenting. You know, venting is when you process your pain horizontally with other people, and you just dump a problem on the on the World Wide Web and hope that someone else will bear it with you. Whereas lamenting is when you take your pain vertically and you express it to God and with a community of believers expressing the pain with you. And actually, there's a risk even when you deal with suffering. There's a risk that our first call is to try and come up with a theological explanation. You know, what's the reason? Why does God allow this? Well, it's because of this, this, and this, and here's my answer. I generally, I was with people in our church just a couple of nights ago, just encouraging a group of people. I think when the question comes, how does God allow suffering? The best answer by far is just to say, I don't know. I don't know why, I don't know why this is happening. I might be able to, I've got some theological tools somewhere to process some of it, but I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why it's happened to you and not me or to her and not him. I just don't have that answer. And, this is actually something that Job's comforters got right. Job's comforters, you know, they got almost everything wrong. But the thing they got right was that when they experienced suffering in their friend who was scraping himself with broken pottery because his boils were so bad and he just lost his whole family and all of his kids, Job's comforters come and sit with him and they show sympathy in Job 2.11. They showed sympathy and comforted him. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him and they raised their voices and wept and tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads, and they sat with him on the ground for seven days and nights, and no one said a word because they saw his suffering was very great. And oftentimes the thing we need to do when we're confronted with suffering is just to weep. That's what I did when I found out that a friend of mine was at stage four lymphoma cancer, and we didn't know, and she got young, she had contemporary hours, young kids. Uh, we, that's what I did. I just, we just sat on their sofa and cried and we just said, I'm so sorry. I have no idea why this is happening and just cried with them. And I think often that's what we're called to do. Stage one of any kind of grieving process is actually often going to be just to cry, to not to try and rush in with answers, but to accept the pain of what it is and to live it together. And I trust that's what even as a community you've been doing to some degree in the last few weeks. So I think the psalmist begins by weeping, by crying out of the depths, I cry. If you look at verse 3 and 4, that's not all he does. He, he moves, and it's very important we don't move too quickly from the first stage, but he moves in verses 3 and 4 from weeping 
to worshipping. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. This is a prayer of worship to God for the gospel, right? If you kept a record of our sins, Lord, we'd all be dead. But you are a merciful and gracious and forgiving God. And because you are, we stand in awe of you. That's what the psalmist is saying, right? I'm crying to you from the depths for mercy. And now I'm worshipping you for the fact that you are a generous and gracious God who has not simply kept a record of all of my sins and treated me accordingly. But instead a God who knows all the sins I've done and yet nevertheless has shown blessing and favour to me and has not marked my iniquities. And because you forgive me, I'm going to worship you and I'm going to stand in awe of you for being a good God. And there is a great power in suffering, not just in weeping, but also in worshipping, in declaring that In the gospel, in Christ, we have far, far more than our sins deserve, even when we are suffering. Now, notice, if that's where the psalm started, it sounds completely heartless. It sounds like you're going up as Job's comforters do later and going up and saying, well, this is because you're a sinner. That's not what people need to hear when they're experiencing grief for the first time. But there does come time, and there has in my life, and there probably has in yours, where the process of grieving the circumstances shifts into a recognition which is very biblical that actually were God to give me what I deserved it would probably be a lot worse than what I'm experiencing now do hear me that's not where we start that's not the first comment you make but it is true and it's one that we need to get to eventually if we're to understand the power of grace a friend of mine who experienced another friend different friend who experienced cancer that the preacher and uh, talked a lot about it um, after they'd got through the other side of it but it was a wonderful comment He's a, he's a pastor of a church in uh, D.C., actually. But a wonderful comment he made about the experience of gratitude and worship in him in the context of what he'd been through. And he said this, the greatest enemy to gratitude is a sense of entitlement. The moment you think you're hard done by and deserve more, you can wave goodbye to thankfulness. However, circumstances of sickness, death or disappointment can lend themselves to a sense of entitlement like no other. So cultivating gratitude and contentment in all circumstances can be a stiff challenge in the storm of suffering. But I've already received from God way more than I deserve. If God were to treat me fairly, he'd back up and remove every single blessing I've had, but he'd also cast me into hell. That's what I deserve. Anything better than that is a bonus and bonuses make me grateful. That's what he said. And I I found that a really profound comment in some ways. I think it reflects what the psalmist is saying here. Lord, you have forgiven my sins. You don't mark my sins. You don't treat me like they deserve. You've treated me on the basis of something different. You've forgiven me. And so I'm going to give thanks to you, even though the circumstances I'm in might be very painful. And you might have come across this idea before, but the difference, you think on this side, this is what I think I'm entitled to. And this is what I think I have. This is what I think I deserve. And this is what I think I have. Okay. If what I think I have is higher than what I think I deserve, the gap is gratitude. But if what I think I deserve is higher than what I think I have, that gap is called grumbling. Right. So the difference, you, you, we have both of those. If you like, something that you, you have, you, all of us have a measure. I think I deserve something like this, but what I've ended up with is that. That's going to cause you to grumble. That's what Israel does in the wilderness, right? We don't we should have this, and instead we've got that. Whereas if instead you spend your time reflecting on all the good things you have and the, what, the bad things you deserve, 
That gap is called thankfulness or gratitude or rejoicing or worship. And the psalmist here is worshipping because he knows he's been given far more than he deserves. If you should mark iniquities, O Lord, nobody would stand before you, but there's forgiveness instead. He's experienced grace, and because he has, he's able to rejoice even though the suffering may not have gone away. And when suffering hits us, it's good to remember, whether it's a virus or anything, what we deserve in ourselves and what we have in Christ as a result of the grace of God. We move from weeping to worshipping. And then having spent time weeping and worshipping in verses 5 and 6, the psalmist talks about the thing which I find hardest in this, in this psalm, which is waiting. Waiting. Right? Verse 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. And when we are in the depths of despair, the psalmist says, we wait for the Lord. That's what we do. We think God is going to bring redemption someday, and he hasn't yet. He's going to bring healing someday. He's going to bring, you know, people, God willing, the economy will come back to life. People will be allowed out of their homes. He's going to bring healing. He's going to bring life. But that day has not come, and I have to wait like watchmen wait for the morning. And knowing we hope in his word, we hope in his promises, and we've got to know the word of God. That's a really powerful thing to do in times of suffering. But we've got to trust that the redemption that is yet to come will come on that day. But in the meantime, we've just got to hang in there and wait. And the psalmist uses an analogy, the analogy of a watchman, which really helps us because the way a watchman waits for the morning is not with a question mark about whether the morning is going to come. That's not how it goes. So no one uh, sort of ponders these matters and just I think each day the watchman going, yeah, it's kind of dark. It's very dark tonight. I wonder if morning will come. That's not the, the spirit of the watchman. And the watchman says, I know morning's going to come. It always does. I don't know when. And particularly in a obviously civilization without watches or timekeeping, you, you are basically in the second or third or fourth watch of the night, but you don't really know beyond that exactly when the hour is going to come, but you know it will. And so you wait with a certainty of the reality of redemption, but you don't know the timing of it. And that's the situation you and I are in, not just for momentary lifting of circumstances like the one we're in now, but actually for the eternal abolition of sin and sickness and death that we're going to experience on the return of Christ. And so we know he's going to come through for us. We just don't know when. I'm going to get healed of everything I've ever had one day. I just don't know when. I don't know if it's going to be before or after I die. I don't know if it's going to be this in the next few days or if it's going to be on the other side of glory. And in some suffering situations, I'm going to have to wait a long time. I'm going to have to wait my whole life. And I'm going to have to die waiting. That's what every, that's what this person I heard about today in our church who's just died of coronavirus is, they, they die, they're dying waiting, saying, Lord, I know you're going to bring healing to me. I don't know whether you're going to bring it today or tomorrow or on the other side of the return of Jesus, but I know it will come. And when it does, I will rejoice. But until that day, I've got to wait. And for all of us, at least once, our testimony is going to be that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That's going to happen to all of us, right? Unless Jesus returns first. So we wait for the Lord, knowing that redemption is coming, but not knowing when. It's what Paul says in Romans 8. You know, we groan inwardly, waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I, was, I love the emperor penguins here. This is one of my favorite animals. I just love the emperor penguins. If you watch 
You watch Dave, you have David Attenborough over there? Wave if you know who David Attenborough is. Americans, actually, these might be the English people who know who he is, I can't tell. But there's waving people, right? When David Attenborough does, Joni knows. Okay, that's good. So when David Attenborough does these studies of the sort of the, the emperor penguins in the Antarctic, I love the way that these creatures, they sort of, they're kind of comedy and they sound like they should have Laurel and Hardy music, the way they move. They're just kind of funny to watch. But of course, the male emperor penguins have to sit through the Antarctic winter looking after their egg for months where it goes dark and the sun doesn't rise for four or five months. And they are in intense blizzards at minus 70 degrees. And it's the most inhospitable place on earth by far. And these creatures are just hanging in there and hanging in there just day after day after day. And I sometimes imagine them singing that Matt Redmond song while they're there, just surrounded in the Antarctic blizzard. I can see a light that is coming for the heart that holds on. There will be an end of these troubles. But until that day comes, Still, I will pray. I mean, I don't know whether penguins sing Matt Redmond, but if they did, I think that would be the song they choose because they're hanging in there anticipating a day that the light's going to break. And when it does, they will praise. But in the meantime, they've just got to wait like watchmen wait for the morning. They've just got to hang in there trusting that the blizzard is going to stop one day and they don't know which day it is. But on, on the, in the hope that it will, they hang in there, they hold fast and they preserve that which they have been given until the day when the light breaks. And it always does. I just don't know when. So we've got to wait as watchmen wait for the morning. And then finally, after weeping, worshipping, waiting, the psalmist starts witnessing. He starts telling the world the good things that God has done. And this is powerful, right? So he summons them in verses 7 and 8. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And do you see what's happened? The psalmist has moved from crying out of the depths of despair to rallying those around him to hope in the Lord, witnessing of his love and redemption. And I don't think that happened overnight, by the way. I think this is a song of it's almost quite stylized journey through suffering. I don't think anybody goes through it in the time it takes you and me to read a psalm. I think this takes weeks, months, years. I would say in my, our journey as a family, particularly with uh, children with quite a lot of special needs and so on through the years, we, I think we, going from weeping to witnessing took years. Uh, we tried to worship through it. We had to wait. I'm still waiting now, really. But I think even in the, in the coronavirus situation, again, I think the grief to the moment of witnessing might take quite some time. But in the end, the people of God who know the character of God and the God of the Exodus and the God of the resurrection, which we've just celebrated together and all these things, that God being like that, we know he will come through and give us a, a reason to testify to his goodness and witness to his wonder. And if you are suffering, you may have no idea what power it has when you declare the praises of God in the midst of what you're in. Right? When you witness, you may not be aware even now, those of us in this community, let alone to people who don't know Jesus, to be able to witness to the goodness of God. You may not know Jesus yourself. You may think, this is kind of new to me. There is a power when you see somebody who has got, seems, seemingly got to hell and back, but is able to speak of the goodness and the faithfulness and the love of God that sustains and strengthens them in the midst of all they've been going through. And that power of sustaining Grace and kindness is something that we witness to and then say, Israel, hope in the Lord, hope in the Lord. There's plentiful redemption with this God. Other gods, redemption is, is an unfamiliar category to most of to any of the gods of the nations. The, certainly unfamiliar to a 
in a secular context because you don't have anybody who can make everything sad come untrue and redeem you out of the power of darkness into life. But with the Lord, there's plentiful redemption. He's got more redemption. He knows what to do with. That's what he does. That's who he is. And for fellow believers, that can be very encouraging. And for unbelievers, it can be very challenging, actually. What kind of God is this, people ask, that it can bring joy to that person in that circumstance? And there's so many examples of this kind of testimony that in a way I don't really know where to start, but they often come in song. And people tend to, the psalmist himself is writing this, of course, as a song. And they often sing of the goodness of God in the midst of unimaginable sadness and suffering. I think of Fanny Lou Hamer from, from your country being tortured and savagely beaten in a Mississippi jail for being active in the civil rights movement. And then the next day, and after the most unspeakable horrors, she ended up testifying before Congress about what she'd suffered. And many of you know the story better than me, but as she starts the following day after this excruciating experience, begins to sing the songs of praise and sings the lines, Paul and Silas began to shout, let my people go. Jail doors open and they walked out, let my people go. And she begins singing and other people in the jail begin to join in the song as they're singing of the goodness and faithfulness of God, the same God of Paul and Silas, same God of civil rights activists in the 60s, same God we serve today, and declaring his consistent faithfulness to them in and through their times of suffering. And there's a power to a story like that or a song like that or a testimony witnessing with the Lord there's plentiful redemption. I think of Horatio Spafford, very different character. Uh, you can tell by the name, can't you? Horatio Spafford, maybe, maybe many things. He wasn't a civil rights activist in the 60s. But he lost all four of his daughters. Many of us may know this story. But all four of his daughters died in the same shipping accident in the Atlantic in the 19th century. His wife was on the ship as well, and she survived. And she sent him a telegram that simply had two words on it. She said, saved alone. She was the only person of the five women in his family who had survived. And on his way across the Atlantic to join her, he wrote words that I think we're going to sing at the end of this uh, service. And they're just so powerful and have been such an encouragement to so many. But he wrote, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And so when people witness and testify to the goodness of God in the midst of Terrible suffering, massive bereavement, excruciating pain. When they do, when they say things like Charles Spurgeon, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Oh, blessed hurricane that drives the soul to God and to God alone. When people who've suffered say things of that nature, it empowers and strengthens and fortifies everybody else. And there is a moment when we come out of the tunnel and the moment when we are no longer simply howling, weeping, but having worshipped and waited, we begin to witness to the goodness of God and say, Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing kindness to us. 
the God of the gospel, the God of redemption, the God of hope, the God for whom we wait. And Lord, whether we are, as we probably between us, we're in all of these places. Some of us are grieving. Some of us are praising. Some of us are just waiting and longing. Some of us are beginning to witness to your kindness in this situation. Whichever we are, Lord, we pray you would sustain us. You would give us the resources of Christ. You would give us all the blessing we, and the power we need to live through the challenges we're in at the moment in a way that is faithful to who you are and filled with hope because of what you've done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.